0: This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. When a guard would stop and talk to you, you used to stand back and you would yell so people could hear what you were saying to that guard as they walked by or or within the vicinity. But he knew what a convict was going to do before they thought it themselves. He'd just been around that long and uh, he was tough. They'd find uh, Spocky in about every conceivable place you could imagine, which we would, of course, dump.
1: They'd wait until everybody was locked up, and he would open his door, run down to sell one, and get a bugler can full of Spocky, and take it back to his cells.
2: She had a kind of a hypnotic power. There were a great many... Wild cats around the penitentiary, and most people couldn't get near them. But she would stand in the doorway of the cell house and say, Kitty, 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 and those cats
1: would go to her. Welcome back, folks, to a very special stool pigeon Saturday episode. Another fantastic gunfight gunslingers wild west stories from samuel anderson our very own here we're in the
0: studio my name is anthony i'm here with sky hi i'm here it's always i feel like every time i'm here i'm always like guess what guys i'm here and then i leave (laughs) again so i'm here for now i'm happy to be here i'm excited that all three of us in the trench together because we don't really get to very often anthony being so busy i'm off doing the insane things that i'm doing and Samuel am just ever steady, though he That's is going right. on for a low soon. So soon enough, there will be none of us in the studio. <laughs> it's true.
2: It's true. The studio will wait patiently for our return. <laughs> it's true. We've
0: been doing this under here for four years. So so far,
2: has it been four years? I
0: think so. Right? Yeah. I'm about to start my fifth year of my program, and wow. we started it yeah, the July, July before I left
2: 2019.
0: That's nuts.
2: That's crazy. <laughs> Need to have an anniversary birthday party. We really yeah. do
0: for our upcoming fourth year anniversary. I think you've got a heck of a story to tell us
2: yeah Yeah, this story may not have too much to do with the prison but it has a lot about idaho and idaho law order and justice it's a story of a lot of ethical questions we we
0: love idaho so that's right
2: gunfights are so fascinating
0: i love
1: this i hope that you know your stories turn into like a film
0: someday like
2: and so common in idaho
0: really is the old west like the wild west let's hear about some gunfights
2: In 1883, Sheriff Fury had one of the fastest rides of his life. On June 10th, a telegram informed him of three horse thieves who'd escaped out of Montana and into Idaho. The men were led by none other than six-shooter Jack, a man legendary for his skills with a gun. This forced the new sheriff inexperienced with handling outlaws as notorious as Jack, did deputize General E.E. Cunningham. The general, a Civil War veteran, boosted a controversial reputation. Regardless of this, the sheriff needed his help. Together, Sheriff Fury, General Cunningham, and their posse of men rode as fast as their horses could carry them, hoping it was not already too late to catch Six Shooter Jack.
0: His name is Sheriff Fury? Let's go! You're absolutely (laughs) right.
2: These names... I love them. ...sound... So. sound old western
0: <laughs> again that's something that if you put in a movie script they'd be like you have to change his name like it's too obvious Yeah, yeah. I love that
2: <laughs> I hope your horses are fast but your guns are faster because this is gonna be a long ride if we're gonna make it to the gunfight at Grave Creek by midnight
1: pew mm. pew I like it
2: <laughs> Elizabeth Loeb gave birth to a baby boy on November 14, 1849 in the city of Blue, Missouri. Manson and Elizabeth Loeb named their baby William, but throughout his life he used a variation of names, including John, Manson, Trover, and of course, his most recognizable alias, Jack. The Daily Arkansas Gazette, as well as other Eastern newspapers, had their own name for Six Shooter Jack, whom they called the, quote, the notorious Idaho outlaw. What distinguished Jack from others who headed out west in the pursuit of gold he wore on his hips. No, it was not the two colts that he holstered on his sides that set him apart, it was how he used them. One common claim locals made about Jack is if two ace-plane cards were thrown into the air, Jack with a gun in either hand could shoot the aces out of each card. One of our incredible volunteers, Brian Zimmerman, and I spent a lot of time talking about whether or not this gun feat would be possible. I think we're both pretty skeptical, but like many Tolte, of the West, this might not be found on hard truth, but rather acts more as an allegory to express his talent. Okay, this takes me back. Sorry, when I used to do magic
1: tricks, <laughs> I used Outing to have a trick. as a nerd. I love this. Uh, yeah, I know. It, it was always for kids. Yeah. I'd be like finger guns. You know, they'd pull a card. I always happened to be like an ace of spades, and then I was able to shoot the card up in the air, and I would tell them to act like they were shooting it, and then it would come down, and and it would have a hole through it, and there would be like. Scorch marks all around it, and stuff. That That's, cute. That's like, super cute. Did the kids yeah, love so cool. it? Oh my
0: god! I bet they
2: would. Oh my gosh. Let them have it. Yeah. I'd be like, "Wow,
1: be careful with those things. You know, holster uh, those things." I love and, that. That's yeah, so fun. Oh,
2: <laughs> Anthony's got a little bit of six-shooter Jack. I was going
0: to say, so in other words, Anthony is a six-shooter Jack. <laughs> no, it, the kids were. The kids I, were, right, right, right.
1: I was just, you know, the one throwing the cars up in the air, you know?
2: Jack's skills first became widely recognized during his prospecting days in Butte, Montana. The newspaper, The Butte Miner, explained the nickname, saying, quote, His proper name was John Lowe. He was an expert marksman with a revolver and took special delight in showing his brother workman what he could do with the two weapons he always kept on hand. Because of his reputation, with a gun, the Butte Sheriff hired Jack as a night watchman in 1879, a job that quickly proved to be more dangerous than expected. On February 16th, a fight broke out between two men named McGregor and Ryan at Silver Bow Saloon. As these two men began a violent brawl, a crowd of onlookers surrounded them, jeering, chanting, and urging the men on. Ryan pulled out a knife, ready to finish the fight and finish McGregor. Permanently, This sent one of the patrons of the saloon scrambling into the streets, searching for the sheriff, an individual he was unable to find. But he did find the night watchman. The patron recognized the night watchman as Jack and begged him to step in before someone got killed. After being informed of this situation, Jack entered the bar, pushed through the crowd, and stepped between the two men. Jack grabbed Ryan's hand, holding the knife and twisted it, forcing the aggressor to drop the weapon. Jack informed him, You are my prisoner. Ryan yelled back, You are a son of a bitch if you think... I I the crowd suddenly became outraged at this sudden turn of events. Chris Nissler, the proprietor, told Jack,
0: No, you can't arrest a man in my house.
2: With the help of eight other men, Nissler began to attack Jack. Drunken fists began to rain down on Jack. Nissler alone punched the night watchman four or five times in the face. Visibly bleeding, Jack remained calm and put a hand on his gun and warned, Gentlemen,
1: stand back or some of you will get hurt. Most
2: of the attacking men leapt back, knowing his reputation with a gun. But James Overson punched him again. But when he went in for a second punch, Jack stopped him. In a flash of silver, his guns were up. With a single bolt, Olverson went down. Men ran from the bar as others went to find the sheriff. The chaos was so intense both before and after the shot, many assumed the gun discharged accidentally. Not to mention many fleeing the scene assumed Jack shot Ryan, the man being arrested. But when the witnesses asked Jack if he'd made a mistake, Jack responded, no, I shot the man I intended." to shoot. Olverson, while close to death, did survive for another 48 hours. He gave his account of what happened, and at the very end, he turned to his brother Fred and told him,
1: Fred, I I ain't afraid to die, but I didn't think it would come so soon.
2: Jack spent the rest of the year in jail, not going on trial for the murder until December. During this time, unsubstantiated rumors began to circulate about all the men Jack killed in Colorado. Likely just talk, the stories did little to convince the public of Jack's innocence in the shooting. The big question the courtroom wanted to know was did Jack's position as a night watchman give him the legal authority to make arrests? Butte law enforcers testified in court that the night watchmen were generally considered deputy sheriffs and they did in fact make regular arrests. This is the same information told to Jack when he started the position, being told his two main duties were to protect the peace and to watch for fires. Jack believed the role gave him the authority to make an arrest, but the jury did not. On December 9th, the jury convicted Jack under the name Manson T. Loeb guilty of manslaughter. His reputation as a stone-cold gunslinger did more to convince the jury than the actual witnesses who testified at the trial. The judge sentenced him to seven years at the Montana Territorial Prison. Deer
0: Lodge, great place.
2: Let's talk about our friends over at Deer Lodge. There are only four remaining territorial penitentiaries, and that, of course, is Deer Lodge, Montana, Laramie, Wyoming, Yuma, Arizona, and, of course, Boise, Idaho. Each of these locations have histories that parallel one another almost exactly in many details and diverge dramatically in others. They all represent the early forms of frontier justice, while at the same time showing how much variation exists between these territories just the other week I received the opportunity to visit Deer Lodge unlike the Idaho Penitentiary which is composed of many separate buildings the facility operated almost entirely under one roof While very few structures remain of their territorial days there is an impressive amount of preservation of how it looked during its closure in 1979 as well as some truly incredible artifact displays if you ever get the chance go sport our friends over in Deer Lodge as well as our friends in all of those other territories penitentiaries. The Deer Lodge prison opened in 1871 under the supervision of Warden Wheeler, who previously worked as a marshal here in Idaho. Jack entered in 1879. At this point, the prison saw massive overcrowding and did not complete the construction of a second building until 1886. At this point, the residents of the site, like ours, remained very self-sufficient, cooking all of their own meals, sewing all of their own clothes, and cutting all of their lumber, but also went for extended periods of time, being locked up in their cells. Jack likely spent most of his time incarcerated, trapped in an overcrowded cell. For the following years, Jack remained incarcerated. But meanwhile, over here in Idaho, Alturas County held a very important election. Alturas, named for the Spanish word for mountain summits or mountain heights, was monstrous in size. It covered much of central Idaho, including the Sawtooths, Sun Valley, and the Lost River region. In 1889, the territory began to split up this county, which it continue to do for the next 30 years, eventually dividing the area into 14 smaller sections.
0: I wish we still had Alturas County. I think it's it's a fascinating... Like little piece of our history. I just was running down Harrison the other day, and one of the streets is Alturas. And I was like, it's a very important word. It's really fascinating.
2: And interestingly enough, there is still an Alturas elementary school because we gave them a tour a couple of weeks ago. Where are they at? I believe it's actually in Haley. Oh, okay. Yep.
0: I know that area pretty well. Yeah. It's a good, it's a good little spot.
1: I
2: love Haley. I love Sun Valley. I know. So it's beautiful. so fun.
0: Ugh. Like I said, one day I really do want to give like a standalone on my research I did out there because oh, yeah. it's so interesting.
2: I would I'm love a stool pigeon about it. It. No, your, cool. your research. Listen, that would be I'm, so cool.
0: I'm totally willing. <laughs> I'll only talk about the Sun Valley stuff even though I have other stuff because California, no one cares about California in this state.
1: Who? Callaway? Callahoo? <laughs>
2: no, that I've never
0: heard of them before. <laughs>
2: no, that sounds great. I yeah, love that. Yeah, of course. Anyway before sun valley had the hollywood influence mm-hmm. long before it was a state in 1882 the territory declared all that land just one big county to give you an idea of how much land this was it covered an area larger than the states of maryland new jersey and delaware combined
0: i love that you just forget how big our states are yeah. and then oh we gosh. make up like six eastern states yeah. we are enormous that's that they
2: make up our counties yeah, yeah. seriously the citizens of that territory only held the authority to elect one sheriff to oversee this massive expanse of wilderness and mining towns making the election a very important event
0: and that sheriff very busy if these are all old mining towns and or like sheep herding or what whatever the case may be that man has his work cut out for him
2: yeah. not to mention the sheriffs had to collect all of the taxes They had to go to every single door, door door-to-door, and collect taxes.
0: Door-to-door.
1: So you just basically spent your whole life on a horse.
2: Away from your family. It would be tough. Yeah, man. Charles H. Fury never planned on a career in law enforcement, but not finding much success in his mining ventures, this Canadian immigrant decided he needed to try something new. Only two years prior, he married Clara Louise Coffin, and that fall, she gave birth to their first son. As resources became tight, Fury decided to rethink his plan to provide for his family. That November, Fury won the election. In 1883, Alturas County got a brand new sheriff. Between tax collection, managing the jail, visiting each town in his district, and enforcing the laws, Fury found himself with a rather busy schedule. As if he did not already have enough to do, on June 1st, Sheriff Fury discovered a very upset Hank Lufkins. Lufkins, a local freight driver, came to report a robbery. During the night, George Bregger, who he hired as a trail hand, made off with Lufkins' best saddle, a $40 watch, and his finest mule. The theft made Lufkins understandably furious. Fury calmed him down and assured Lufkins he could capture the thief. The sheriff sent word south and began to ride fast. Marshal VanderCook of Utah, having received the sheriff's telegram, apprehended George. He delivered the prisoner to sheriff, who he then escorted back to Idaho. Later that summer, for the crime of grand larceny, the territory sentenced George to 18 months of hard labor in the Idaho Territorial Penitentiary and gave him the number 39.
0: 39, that is so early. Wow, yeah.
2: Back over in Montana, Jack served two years and six months at Deer Lodge before being pardoned by Governor Benjamin Potts in 1882. It's unclear what he experienced in the Montana Penitentiary, but he left a changed man. Before his crimes seemed to be more situational, following his incarceration, they became much more deliberate. Once out, Jack immediately found himself in trouble again for, you guessed it, carrying concealed weapons. Jack just could not give up his guns. Since his guns were publicly displayed on his hips, he assumed they were not considered a concealed weapon. Despite this, he pled guilty to the crime and paid the fine but i sincerely doubt the repercussions were enough to make jack partway with his colts
0: not when his name is six shooter jack Seriously. you don't get rid of your six yeah. shooters if <laughs> yeah. you, that's your name
2: on May 25th, Joseph Harkness went into Butte to arrange to get a team of horses. He went to the Olsley and Valentine livery and asked if he could borrow a team as well as a wagon to take to Pipestone Springs. The owner, Henry Valentine, lent the young man what he needed, and due to Harkness's reputation as an honest miner, he did not require Harkness to put down a deposit, something that Valentine quickly learned to regret. Harkness loaded up the Broncos and left town, but he left with no intent of heading to Pipestone Spring. Just outside of town, Harkness found Chase Warfield and Six-Shooter Jack. Together, the three horse thieves made a quick pace and left nothing but a cloud of dust in their wake. Valentine waited, patiently for his stock, but when the return date came and went, the stable owner became nervous. The rough mountain trails in the area were full of wild animals and road agents. This young man might be hurt. Valentine began to ask around town, but after learning Harkness settled up with all of his affairs and left with his bedroll, the reality of what was actually happening began to set in. Immediately, Valentine contacted the sheriff, and together they tried to retrace the men's steps, finding that the men passed through Silver Bow Junction, in then made their way south to Idaho. The Rustlers, with an entire week's head start, made it anybody's guess where they went after crossing the border. Valentine sent a telegram to Sheriff Fury in Idaho and explained the situation. The vastness of the Idaho wilderness and Alturas County made this a difficult task. Men hiding and on the run could be a needle in a haystack if they played it smart. But in an era of few major roads, Fury knew the men most likely needed a pass through a few specific spots. Based on the direction the Desperados were coming, Fury felt confident that they were going to pass through Chalice, Idaho. Valentina, already in hot pursuit, finished his almost 200-mile trek and arrived at Chalice before the sheriff. Their suspicions were correct. The men, in fact, did pass through the city. But moving faster than the authorities, they were now gone. However, it was not all bad luck. Valentine did discover some of the horses and wagons which a local man purchased from the strangers. Valentine wired fury and informed him the group now headed towards Willow Creek, saying, quote, Look out for Six-Shooter Jack and Chase Warfield. They passed here Friday on the road to Arco, horseback, riding chestnut and bay horses, carrying large rolls of blankets behind their saddles. He finished the telegram by reminding the sheriff, quote, Six-Shooter Jack carries two Six-Shooters. Do your." best to catch them. Now, you might have noticed there is someone missing from that telegram. That's Joseph Harkness. Harkness apparently separated from the other men after they sold the horses going in the opposite direction. Now, you might think apprehending two fugitives might be easier than three, but the authorities possessed no such luck. Reports quickly came in that Six Shooter Jack and Warfield joined up with a gang of outlaws who waited in Idaho for them. Remember, it is June. Fury, at the age of 38, has been sheriff for just over five months, during which time he's made arrests and tracked down a few criminals, but nothing like this. This new, inexperienced sheriff has never gone after anyone as dangerous or as skilled with a gun as Six Shooter Jack, let alone an entire gang of outlaws. If they are able to catch these men, and right now that is a big if, they will have a difficult and dangerous job of actually arresting the members of the gang. Fury needed help. He needed a man he could trust. A man not only quick with a gun, but one who could keep his head during a shootout. For Sheriff Fury, one man easily came to mind. And with that, we come to the final key player in this story today. Ebenezer Eskin Cunningham had a complicated past. Few men that I've ever researched have been both so beloved and so hated. Born in 1839, he enlisted in the Union Army at the age of 22 and fought as a first lieutenant in the 2nd Regiment of the Nebraska Cavalry. Cunningham saw a lot of action during his years of service to our country, but did not do so as a general during the war. The title became attributed to him many years later. After the Civil War, Cunningham worked as a geological surveyor and as an active member of the Republican Party. This caused him to be involved in a political scandal in 72. The jury found him innocent of corruption, but the controversy damaged his reputation. His work as a geological surveyor for the US government caused Cunningham to travel much of the West and be away from his wife, Millie Hitchcock, and their two sons for long periods of time. During these travels, Cunningham met Isadora F. Rockwell, and the two began an affair. Cunningham eventually abandoned his wife and children. and move to Deadwood, South Dakota with Isadora.
0: I think all the time, even just watching my old movies, that because we are so able to contact people in the most immediate way, the concept that you would just be like, oh, he's off doing work, don't know when I'll see him next, I may hear from him in a couple weeks when he writes me a letter, is unfathomable. And then to have him start an affairing did he did he go back to his family and be like, I'm leaving, or did he just never come back? I don't know. That's so interesting.
2: His wife knew about it. The town mm. he came from knew about it. So at very least, he must have sent a letter.
0: She's she's the meme staring <sighs> out the window. When will my husband return from war? Oh. And he has abandoned them. <sighs> Oh, man!
2: Just like her lover, different people both loved or hated Isadora, depending on the area and era. She received a good education before moving west and came from a well-respected family in Virginia. At 26 years old, she met the 38-year-old Cunningham. Newspapers in Nebraska described her in scathing and suggestive terms as a woman both overly wild and sexual. In vast contrast, California newspapers later on remembered her for her kindness, her artistic abilities, and her generosity. Many held vastly different views on her. The only thing all the papers could agree on, Isadora's struggles with her health only aggravated her alcoholism. Despite these struggles, Cunningham remained devoted to Isadora. In a way, the papers described as blind passion, infatuation, and as a desire to protect and save her. Together, the couple moved to Idaho in 1880, where they quickly became cherished community members. This was the 44-year-old man the desperate sheriff went to. When asked for his help, Cunningham did not turn Sheriff Fury down. After the sheriff deputized Cunningham, they saddled up their horses for a fast ride. Deputy McCrudy, along with a cowboy named Frank King, helped put together a posse of six other men. Once the sheriff and Cunningham joined the group, they left town as swiftly as their stallions could handle the mountain roads. They reached Willow Creek around noon, where they were able to join up with a very exhausted. Valentine, who arrived after finishing another 135 miles by horseback. But despite their efforts and speed, again, they were too slow. The gang already beat them to the spot and were now gone. But the gap between the two parties now grew a little bit smaller. The gang were only three and a half hours ahead of them. The group pushed forward, determined that if they moved fast enough, they could catch them. Their steeds exhausted and the men worn out, they took a short break for dinner at the Jones homestead at five o'clock. There, they learned the gang now rode less than three hours ahead. Now that they were finally closing in, the chances of catching up to the gang began looking better and better, which left the posse with another difficult question. What was the plan once they caught up to the fugitives? They did not know how many men were in the gang, nor their exact location. Perhaps most importantly, before they started making arrests, they needed to verify that the men they were approaching were in fact the horse thieves they were after, not just a band of unlucky travelers. In order to answer these questions, it required a rather dangerous mission, one that cowboy Frank King bravely volunteered to take on. Frank, going even quicker than before, rode ahead of the posse alone, and within six miles, he finally caught up to the outlaws. Slowing the stride of his horse and calming his demeanor as much as possible, Frank rode up to the men and engaged them in some casual conversation. The men were friendly enough, and if the gang carried any suspicions of Frank's motives, they did not show it. Frank had never met Six Shooter Jack or Warfield, but based on Valentine's descriptions, Jack did in fact lead the group with Warfield close behind. But the brands of the stolen horses acted as the most tangible evidence Frank gathered. Making some excuse, he turned around and left the gang. After rejoining the group, Frank reported back what he discovered. The fugitives traveled ahead of them only a few miles away. Frank also warned them that they were all armed to the teeth. The seven men ahead of them were packing a lot of firepower.
0: Wait, sorry. I just want to make sure I understand. So Frank basically infiltrated like he was a spy. Yeah, okay. he's like an undercover yeah, yeah. agent. Oh. That is I, the nerves of this. I, I don't that. think I could Ooh. do that. I, would, I think I'd be good at it, I think, but yeah.
2: I don't know. That'd be scary. You're, you're, you're friendly enough, Anthony. Yeah, You hey can make guys. friends with anyone. <laughs> nice cows. Wow.
0: Well, look at that brand. That's interesting.
2: Oh. <laughs> Together, the posse voted for Cunningham to lead the arrest. Cunningham did not want any bloodshed from either side, so after some discussion, they agreed upon the following strategy. They would leave their horses behind. On foot, they needed to make their way to the robber's camp. After surrounding them and waiting for the sun to rise, Cunningham would step forward and place the men under arrest. If they met him with any resistance, the gang would find nine guns surrounding them on all sides. The group, with a mixture of nervousness and excitement, went forward with the plan. With only the pale moonlight to guide their way, Cunningham, Fury, McCrudy, and the rest of the men made their way through the woods and sagebrush. As if in an ominous foreshadowing, they spotted the outlaw's fire down the hill next to Grave Creek. The men, moving like wraiths through the trees made their way down the hill and created a perimeter. As carefully and as patiently as they could, they began to creep forward. By midnight, they were in position and ready to wait there for hours until sunup. The fire had burned down and now its orange glow flickered very faintly. The only sounds in the entire valley came from the occasional crackle from its embers and the burbling of the creek. Most of the gang slept soundly, Six-shooter Jack and Warfield, however, were awake, quietly conversing with one another. Had one of them heard the approach of the posse? Cunningham couldn't tell, but he knew if he was going to make his move, now was the time to do it. Cunningham unholstered his gun and stood up from the shadows. Walking forward and speaking in a loud, clear voice, he called, Throw up your hands! He did not need to ask again. The gang were on their feet in seconds, but so was the posse with their weapons aimed. Hopelessly outgunned, the gang threw their hands up. They were outmatched. They were caught, and the gang knew it. Cunningham's plan had been a success, and without a single drop of blood being spilled. Warfield stood there, his hands waving hopelessly in the air. But six-shooter Jack wore a strange and sharp expression on his face. He looked slowly back and forth at all the guns pointed at him. He looked at McCrudy before his eyes finally found Cunningham's. For one moment, and one moment only, the men locked eyes. Jack drew his gun, Cunningham shot, hitting Jack in the chest, followed immediately by a shot from a cootie. The other gang members leapt to the ground with their hands over their heads. Then the rest of the posse lived loose. Shots from all sides rang out. The flashes of the guns lit up the entire valley. Taking a volley of bolts, Jack fell back. As he fell, the gun in his hand shot one last wild bullet into the air. It was the last shot six-shooter Jack ever fired. On his back, riddled with bolts, as if his mind was not able to keep up with the quickness of what just happened, he stammered, By God,
1: they are all shooting at
2: me. Those were his final words. As the sunrise broke over the mountains, six-shooter Jack died, right there lying in the dirt near Grave Creek, with a gun still in each one of his hands.
0: Could you actually tell me what movie this plot is from? Because this sounds like an old Western. Totally. I could, like, yeah. I could totally envision that yeah, being yeah. filmed and the way it looks. And yeah, that's crazy. Can
2: you understand why when I read these newspapers, I was like, this needs to be an episode? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Absolutely. Wow. So he he only killed one person in his life? To what I understand, the historical documents suggest he only killed one person. And in a very self-defense situation, there was a lot of rumors about other people he killed, and I dug and dug and dug under all of his aliases in the areas where supposedly those murders happened. Couldn't find any of those. Mm-hmm. With our Samuel Ridgway story, we saw something very similar. John Lee, who committed a murder in the same area after he committed the murder, everyone said, oh, this is the sixth person he killed. Could not find anything to actually support that. So it's mostly like dangerous reputation
0: yeah. proceeds. Yeah. So I was gonna say, but you don't get the nickname Six Shooter unless you at least are causing mayhem. It's kind he- of yeah. yeah, like you said, the reputation of like, oh, six like Shooter Jackson in town, but... I'm thinking about, have you watched those
1: like marksman shows? Those <laughs> those crazy gunslinging marks. Oh, oh my gosh. Yes. Those are um, incredible to watch, but... Just because like how
0: quick they are. Yeah, yeah.
1: And just kind of those flourishes that mm. people can do with with those little handguns, yeah. that, those revolvers, and that's I don't crazy. know if he...
2: That was the impression I got, that he was more of a gun trickster, and then after he killed someone, it mm-hmm. soured all those skills with a gun. Yeah, like he was known for being really good at being a trick shot and then all of a sudden he killed someone
0: yeah and i'm sure he was disappointed in that like if he was just a trickster and you know pressed everyone i'm sure that you know using those guns which had always kind of developed your reputation to now tarnish it i'm sure it was very frustrating and upsetting it would be the same as any passion that you have and you you know something accidentally goes wrong with it and now it's ruined forever right like that would be so disappointing so yeah who are you gonna be pals with it's gonna be the gang of outcasts and like if that was your identity yeah. so, so much so that that was your nickname like where do you go from there like 140 years later we're talking about yeah. him yeah, so true. i
1: mean he lived up to his name
0: Yeah.
2: And, yeah here
0: we are. He made it in the newspaper. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. He's yeah. got a legacy.
2: Sheriff Fury and the posse quickly moved in and handcuffed all of the men. As they did so, McCrudy began to rifle through Jack's bag. There he found another revolver. Then another. Oh. Then another. <laughs> oh, man.
0: In all... <laughs> so he's, what, like, 24-shooter at this point? It's almost like a bulletproof vest. Metal <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <That'll> strapped <him. laughs>
2: In all, Jack carried six pistols in his bedroll when the posse killed him, including those on his person and made for a total of eight guns.
1: Jesus, that's one for every day of the week.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And then he writes writes the day off. Oh, my my Monday day. But
2: as they arrested the gang, Fury discovered something rather humorous. This gang of outlaws were not actually outlaws at all, but rather just a group of travelers who rode through the area. To try and throw the authorities off their trail or to make their numbers look more imposing, Jack and Warfield asked to join up with a group of travelers a few days prior. The trusting travelers, who were complete strangers, had no idea these men were wanted. They innocently allowed them to join their ride and were nearly caught in the crossfire due to that decision.
0: Oof. Wow. Yikes. Yeah. Imagine.
2: I had a feeling. I was like...
1: Ah. What? How did he get into this
2: big gang? And, mm. Oh, man. All of these men were released and allowed to continue on their way.
0: That's a story, though, to tell your friends. You, like, <laughs> pull into the next town like, guys, guess what?
2: <laughs> Valentine, who just ridden 300 miles to catch the men who stole his horses, immediately turned around and escorted the prisoner 300 miles back to Butte. Warfield claimed innocence by professing he did not know they were stolen horses, but this did little to persuade Valentine. Warfield remained in jail for for almost a year, after which it seemed that he'd learned a serious lesson about trying to steal horses. So, once released in 1884, he proceeded with a career of robbing stagecoaches instead. sure, that
0: makes sense. (laughs) Do what you know.
2: Despite reports of his death in an October shootout later that year, he lived until 1906 and died at age 65. Valentine outlived Warfield, dying in 1920 after serving both as a judge and mayor of Butte. Interestingly enough, Joseph Harkness, the man who actually stole the horses and wagon, slipped away from the authorities while they went after his accomplices. No one ever served any prison time for this crime. For the rest of his term as sheriff, Fury remained busy. Horse theft, cow wrestling, and other livestock stealing remained the most common crime he dealt with. During his four years in office, he arrested countless men, most of whom were later convicted and fined, but 24 men committed serious enough crimes to be sentenced to hard labor at the Idaho Territorial Penitentiary, each of whom the sheriff personally delivered to Boise. The most dangerous man Fury ever arrested and escorted to the prison was number 128 Samuel Hatton, described by the Spokane Review as, quote, one of the worst men ever confined in the Idaho Penitentiary. Hatton served a sentence for grand larceny, but was suspected in multiple cold-blooded murders inside the prison. He continued his violent ways until eventually a guard named French stabbed him with an eight-inch knife in 1892. If you're interested in hearing that story, check out The Stool Pigeon Saturday with our incredible Suzanne in Season 6. Sheriff Fury lost much of the respect he gained in the past few years when one of his prisoners, George Pearson, managed to escape from the county jail. George killed John Hall in 1882 in the territory. sentenced him to be executed. During his pursuit of George, Fury actually rode past the wanted man without recognizing him. Mm. When they finally did capture George a month later, the sheriff's department was the laughingstock of the county. Now, George Pearson is a gunslinger whose story is too complicated and tragic for me to do it justice today, but I promise I will highlight it in a showdown episode in some future season. Sheriff Fury oversaw the execution and hanged George and. Haley, Idaho, on August 1st, 1884, in an area now referred to as Dead Man's Gulch. But even after the hanging, public opinion turned against fury, and in 1887, he lost the election to Sheriff Kinley. The embarrassment aside, the sheriff may have been a little relieved to be done with the position. At this point, his ranch and mining investments were substantial enough to support his family. His wife Clara and their four children must have also been grateful to have him home far more often. Now, let's rewind back a few years. One month after the death of Six Shooter Jack in 1883, Cunningham married Isadora on July 21st in a small ceremony of close friends in Haley, Idaho. Cunningham continued a career as a surveyor, but he also worked as a miner, constable, rancher, business owner, postmaster, and a mine owner to name just a few. Together, the couple followed these ventures around the state. While living in Tukara, Idaho, the Cunninghams took on a border, a man named R.D. Wells, who worked in a telegraph office at the train station. However, the living arrangement did not seem to be working out. Cunningham felt Wells acted ungrateful for the room and board, as well as being rude to his wife. After Wells insulted Isadora as she made the men's breakfast one morning, a furious Cunningham had had enough and gave the man 30-day warning to vacate. Two weeks later, Cunningham went to the train station to drop off some mail. Wells' anger erupted, and he decided to put an end to his landlord. He stepped out of the train station with a shotgun and fired both barrels at Cunningham. The shot tore through his wrist. As the bloody Cunningham ran away, Wells used the rifle to shoot at him two more times, missing both shots. Sheriff Fury arrested Wells. Cunningham survived the gunshot, but all of the bones in his hand were completely shattered. Both Dr. Miller and Dr. Brown arrived to see what they could do. They found at least seven fragments of buckshot in his arm. Between the damaged flesh and the nearly obliterated bone, it did not take the doctors long after seeing the wound before they asked for Cunningham to be held down. Oh, no. Then they produced a bone saw and proceeded to amputate the general's (laughs) left arm.
0: Oh, my gosh. Just below the elbow. Just below the elbow. It's
1: too early for this, Sam. I don't want to hear about that. uh, The sound effect.
0: I don't. Okay, keep going.
2: <laughs> this, however, was not the last fight Cunningham fought on behalf of his wife. Eight months later, Isadora got in an argument with Al Harris over the upcoming sheriff election. Harris began cursing at Isadora, who then drew a gun on him. Locals described Isadora as being a crack shot and not a woman who you wanted to get in a gunfight with. But instead of killing Harris, she fired the gun three times into the air. I love her. She was tough. Watchman Connolly arrested her and escorted her to the jail. Then Harrison Cunningham attempted to explain what just transpired to Sheriff Fury. Their different perspectives on what happened ended in a brawl. The men exchanged blows. Then after pushing away from a clench, Harris pulled out his Colt. Cunningham without losing a beat drew his gun and with his one remaining hand. Sheriff Fury with no hesitation threw himself between the two gunslingers. The sheriff did not arrest either man, but a year after their bloody ride together to Grave Creek, this fight forced the sheriff to disarm his friend and confiscate Cunningham's gun. Later that night, Cunningham found Harris, who punched the general, but miraculously, Cunningham managed to de-escalate the situation. Together, the men apologized and made it. The next day, Cunningham pled guilty of disturbing the peace on behalf of his wife. Despite the obituary written for Cunningham in Deadwood in 1889, he lived for many more years before moving to California. Cunningham remained very devoted to Isidore for the rest of his life. Together, they had a baby girl and many successful business ventures. The state eventually appointed Cunningham to be the judge of South San Francisco. When Isadora passed away in 1921, the city remembered her for, quote, work among the needy. Cunningham passed away four years later at the age of 85. Meanwhile, back in Idaho, Clara and Charles Fury remained married for 48 years until Fury passed away in 1928 in Pocatello. His wife joined him eight years later at the of 89
0: i do find it interesting that isadora had such a cool head that it would have been so easy to be really reactionary but she didn't aim it at him she just shot it up in the air and yeah i like her she seems kind of like a badass big fan
2: she was tough yeah she was sounds very like. very tough and of course in california once her husband was a judge she started doing a lot with charity sure. work but especially back in her pioneer days mm-hmm. like she was known for hunting killing deer you have to
0: totally. like there's yeah. no way to survive without that still, there was, still, yeah women out of here. the
2: west
1: seriously incredible truly yeah, well, talented
2: and gutsy and everything
0: mm-hmm. yeah
2: and Isidore broke a lot of stereotypes about women back in yeah. the day. That was probably one of the reasons why she was so hated and seen as this sexual deviant mm, mm-hmm. and this wild woman because mm-hmm. she was going to saloons, she was mm-hmm. drinking. Though
0: I would be interested to know how, if those gender ideas were different in the West because of the need for them to be a little sturdier and to, like, yes, they were mostly in charge of, like, doing the cooking and the cleaning but you know if they were living on a farm there's simply no way you get out of mm-hmm. you know doing the work on the farm and yeah. so i would be interested to know sorry this is like what i study but it it is it changes so differently and it changes depending on where you are so i would be interested to know because i'm sure she did was breaking clearly was breaking rules and it like shooting probably yeah. was a way that she broke that gender stereotype but i want to know more about her i like her so much other and- than other than that she, she led she yeah. led her husband, her future husband, to leave his entire family. Not the biggest fan of that, but uh, yeah, interesting.
2: Women in the West saw a lot more freedom and mm-hmm. a lot of changing mm-hmm. values. A lot of women went West and could have different roles, possess more property, have more land. Mm-hmm. And there were, especially as the East caught up to the West, mm-hmm. we see kind of this step back into that more Puritan society. Mm-hmm. It was very disrespectful for a woman to be in a saloon did that that's mean correct. women were never in a saloon no absolutely right. not there were obviously sex workers mm-hmm. saloon girls who, mm-hmm. who were making a profit selling drinks there is a very interesting history there where a lot of women who did want to drink have careers as gamblers as, as gunslingers went west
0: well you you know you hear the likes of calamity jane and yeah. all of those you know women annie oakley those women sharpshooters who they were breaking a lot of norms but they were doing it in a way that still retained i think an, an essence of femininity and that's kind of part of why they got away with it is there were certain ways that they maintained that. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, Wyoming was the first state to allow women the right to vote. Colorado soon followed. Of course, as we know, Idaho allowed women the right to vote in 1896, which is, let's see if I can do math, what, 24 years before the rest of the country gave women the right to vote. A lot of it is because they were necessary out here. The West doesn't grow without the help of women, whether that's on the farm, whether that's in the typical uh, way of reproduction, whether that's in production. I really need to study more about women in the Old West because they are so integral and yet they're so ignored so often. But Isadora sounds like someone I could get behind.
2: For fans of the show looking to learn more about gender in the West and women's place in the West, I highly recommend the following books. New Women in the Old West, Wicked Women, and the Gentle Tamers. They all kind of give you different perspectives of the lives and the gender constructs that were being broken down Mm -hmm. by very brave, trailblazing women who saw a lot of change in their experience out west including Mm -hmm. women like Isadora. Yeah Yeah. I think a lot of it was out
1: of necessity of course like living out here but I mean the people who are writing about them are journalists and people who are coming from a different class of society who are judging and trying to maintain the standard of the women that they know from their circles Mm -hmm. their social circles Mm -hmm. i think that the average everyday man in the west probably didn't think as similarly like seeing a woman in a saloon as like a journalist or someone from that higher echelon of education and society totally it's tough to imagine Mm -hmm. you know even today like you have to wonder what the journalist's perspective is on every story you read yeah. Yeah. And what are totally. they trying to maintain? Or
0: Yeah. Women in the West are fascinating and and what they contributed to society that I think got lost for a really yeah. long time that I think we're now, you know, really trying to bring back.
2: Six-shooter Jack's death became not only a popular topic in the Rockies, but throughout the rest of the United States. I found that 24 different states across the country wrote over 150 articles about this quote, Idaho outlaw. Whatever reputation he held in life became legendary in his death, but the legacy of a gunslinger is often more complicated than newspaper headlines. How is Jack remembered? Most of the press saw him as a villain, with newspapers describing how his quote, worthless was filled with buckshot or Jack got his medicine but those who actually knew him felt the media's representation of him was deeply unfair saying quote as a matter of fact there seemed to be nothing in his Montana career to warrant his reputation many felt that Jack's killing of Jim Olverson as a night watchman appointed by the sheriff was justified and done to protect himself and the other patrons of the saloon with Jack's supposed Colorado murders completely unverified his friends and family said Jack did did not become a criminal until after the time he served in prison. Jack, of course, is not the only person described that way. The problem of individuals becoming institutionalized and or indoctrinated into harder crime is a problem that correctional facilities struggled with back then as well as something that they continue to battle against today. A perfect example of this is Robert Parker, better known as Butch Cassidy, who served in the Laramie Territorial Prison in 1894 for horse theft. Author. Tom Hatch writes, quote, Butch would later remark that he was a petty criminal before entering prison, but his experience behind bars had hardened him into an outlaw." No matter who's at fault, Jack, just like Butch, left prison, undeniably, a changed man. Jack might be remembered as a villain to some and a friend to others, but most of all, Jack is remembered for his talent with a pistol. But in the end, not even Jack could outgun an entire posse, a fact he probably was well aware of when he drew his guns. William Lowe, better known as Six Shooter Jack, was gunned down at age 33 on the 15th of June, 1883. His mother, Elizabeth, Anne Fisher, who had to watch her son's death become a national sensation, outlived him by eight years. Six-shooter Jack is buried in Haley and remains to this day as one of the most famous gunslingers in the history of town. Was that
0: 140 years ago? Like this month? Or like next two month? two weeks. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Man, that's a long, that's a fun long time story. ago. Yeah, that's super wow. interesting. And I think the reputation that he gets both before and after. And I think like you talk about how you know Isadora had this kind of contradicting all these things written about her. I think this gets to the heart of being a human, right? Yeah. Is that I think so often when we look at prisoners, we just see the bad in them. But all of us are capable of bad, but all of us are also capable of good. And so to try to define people is one thing, which I think so often, I don't want to say newspapers were wrong or right on what they did you know, but they had to kind of write a villain almost, you know, that they had to paint him as this like, oh, horrible villain who had all this like blood in him. And, and that might not be the case. We too often try to pigeonhole people into one thing, but we're all just complicated human beings trying our best.
2: We talked at the beginning of the episode ab- about Hollywood, and especially with like the spaghetti westerns, you see this very stern black and white, good guy mm-hmm. and bad guy, pull guns, good guy wins, or not. But the theme that I was really drawn to about this story was how complicated, Complicated and mm-hmm. human. Everyone is. Cher Fury, Cunningham, Isadora, and then, of course, Six Shooter Jack. They all at one point of their life were seen in very positive mm-hmm. light, and in another part of their life seen in very negative light. They were very, very complicated mm-hmm. individuals doing the best they could to make the decisions they were making in those moments they made it. Some of those decisions throughout the course of their lives got people killed. Mm-hmm. That's terrible and it's tragic, but it shows you how dangerous the West was and how quickly things could turn but these were humans making those decisions humans trying to do the best they could with the information they had i think that a song
1: if it hasn't already been written about him should be written about him <laughs> yeah so. for sure so anthony
0: uh, you aren't doing enough ballad so why don't six you food yeah i was gonna jam. say why don't you write a, a ballad for us all right us. i'll end the episode with Nice, <laughs> <Hi, laughs> sam well that Super was interesting. that was
1: fantastic i'm curious how many folks that live there know about it Thanks for bringing up Deer Lodge
0: too. Yeah, we love, to, yeah Lodge. we love Deer Lodge. I love Deer Lodge so much. Show. Yeah, it's so interesting.
2: Always visit our friends at our other yes. sites. We each have something unique to offer. And
0: all, all different. Like, don't yeah. think that you, like you've seen one, you've seen them all. Yeah. Like, yeah. like um, Deer Lodge is so different than ours.
1: Yeah. All right, everybody, do your own time. Do your own number. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us
2: at behindgraywalls at gmail.com. Special thanks for voice actors Logan Adams, Alex Provong, Jack Porquet, Peter Fidel, and Jerry Broad.